Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, the PM with the thorn in his side. I can announce that Greater Manchester will move to the very high alert level. But Manchester is miserable now. Is this a game of poker? Are they playing poker with places and people's lives through a pandemic? Is that what this is about? And Brexit negotiations are back on. But what difference does it make? There might not be a good outcome to this, but there are many different levels of how difficult this can become. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Waugh. Hi Arj. Hey Paul. We've also got the Politics and Investigations Editor at the Manchester Evening News, Jennifer Williams. Hello. Hi Jen, welcome back. And we've got Manchester University Politics Professor Rob Ford. Hi. Hi Rob, welcome back as well. You'll notice that we've reunited the team from Manchester Tory Conference, I think last year or the year before. But in very different circumstances, we're not in the pub today having a pint, unfortunately, even though that's, I think, the last day you can do it in Manchester, although we couldn't be with each other anyway. So here we are. Um, Well, relations between the Tory government and Northern England plunged to a new low this week after Boris Johnson imposed a tier three lockdown on Greater Manchester without agreeing a package of financial support with local leaders. Businesses including pubs, betting shops, casinos, bingo halls, Adult gaming centres and soft play areas will now be closed for 28 days in a bid to curb the spread of coronavirus in the city of 2.8 million people. Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham was branded the King of the North for his his tough stance in negotiations, eventually warning that his citizens face a punishing winter as the economic impact of restrictions bite. Let's just have a listen to Burnham's assessment of the situation in Manchester. They're taking that off again. Is this a game of poker? Are they playing poker with places and people's lives through a pandemic? Is that what this is about? Are they piling pressure on people to accept the lowest figure that they can get away with? Is that what this is about? Is that how they're running this country? Is this a government committed to levelling up this country? That's what they told people in this city. The people who drive those taxis, who work in the pubs, many of them who may have voted for them, they said to them they would level up. What we've seen today is a deliberate act of levelling down. Uh, Paul, we've had the Chancellor Rishi Sunak up in the Commons this morning announcing some new support for businesses in Tier 2, which Manchester's been in for months uh, before it will move into Tier 3 tomorrow, uh, including retrospectively, which has left Andy Burnham to question why this wasn't on the table earlier this week. Uh, What the hell is going on in government? Well, it certainly does feel like a, a, a U-turn, doesn't it, from the government, that they've realised that despite uh, all, everything they planned in the summer, everything seemed to be based on some kind of big economic recovery and the virus coming under control. And both of those things, you might say, were just fantastically naive assumptions. And um, the people who are paying for it are those who've, over the summer in Greater Manchester, have actually uh, have had to live with what are effectively now tier two restrictions for a long time. Um, uh, no, we've only just come up with this phrase tier two, but for people who live there, you know, they haven't been able to meet mix in households, they haven't been able to do a lot of the things that drive economies. Um, and 
that it's only now today when London seems to be finally waking up to what this is like that actually you're going to see some kind of change in in approach. Now the good news is, of course, that the Chancellor has amended his job scheme um, before it comes into force. In other words, it's only at the end of this month we shouldn't forget when this new job support scheme comes into force. Um, uh, the reason he's doing it, of course, is because everyone knows that when you pull the plug on the current furlough scheme, the job retention scheme, and as I wrote this morning, the clue is in the name, job retention scheme is not going to be a job retention scheme anymore. It's a job support scheme. Um, I think he unwittingly let the cat out of the bag, though, in terms of the, the, the naming of it. Um, you're going to see a lot of jobs lost, probably, um, in coming weeks. This is a, a last-ditch attempt to sort of fend off both those job losses, but also to calm people down a bit more, certainly not just in, in the North, but everywhere who are really worried about it. And I think what, what's staggering over the last week is just this, how bad Boris Johnson has been at the politics of it, because he... he when he did his big announcement, he, he let run this perception that somehow th this was some kind of punishment beating for Greater Manchester for Andy Burnham, that somehow he was withholding the 60 million he'd put on the table. If he'd said in his press conference, actually, it's still on the table. Um, in fact, we're going to give it um, unconditionally. We're going to hand it over. Then he would have been a much better, stronger political position to do it. They did that hours later and the day later. And I think in doing so, they sort of lost the political momentum. Yeah, and Jen, I think, is it bypassing Andy Burnham, that cash? Um, and, and just generally, Jen, more generally, um, what's it been like the past couple of weeks as this negotiation has been going on up in Manchester? And um, why couldn't they do a deal in the end? There was just £5 million of difference. Um, it's a good question as to why they couldn't do a deal in the end. I think it was because, uh, I think the Treasury had made quite clear that they had a red line uh, where furlough was concerned. And so they wouldn't move on it. I, I think they didn't want to set a precedent for other areas. Um, but I also think there was an awful lot of the way that um, political row played out that was personal. I think the government really hate Andy Burnham, like really hate him. And every time he appears on the TV doing his King of the North stuff, they just hate him that bit more. Um, I think what was strange about the way the government played it, though, was that effectively Andy Burnham ended up being martyred. I mean, he was there on live on on Sky News, being shown on his phone what restrictions they were going to be bringing in here and what the process of financial thing was going to be. And, you know, that probably won't be forgotten very quickly, all for the sake of £5 million, as Paul says, you know, quite why they allowed that to sort of drag on in the way that it did is a bit um, is a bit bemusing, really. Um, it's been, I was thinking about this <laughs> this morning, right at the beginning of the COVID crisis, I remember talking to a doctor here who said that, remember this is going to be a marathon and not a sprint. And, and he was kind of talking about his own workforce, but he was talking about everybody really. Um, and I kind of kept that in mind during the first wave. And it was only this morning that I kind of thought that for most of the rest of the country, that marathon more or less stopped in July. Apart from the sort of three week gap before our restrictions came back in, we've been running the same race ever since. And the last week has felt like a sprint. Like that's the best way that I can sort of describe it. It's been, the last fortnight has been really intense really really intense and the worst thing about it for everybody concerned and this is still the case is the the lack of an end point it's the it's the uncertainty that comes with not knowing how long these kinds of restrictions are going to go on for and what the mechanism and what the threshold is for coming out and we've never known that we never knew that over the summer it's never been made clear it's still not been made clear now 
and the Treasury has costed the Tier 3 support until March. Well, I mean, everybody here is looking at that and thinking, well, we're in this till March now, apart from whatever they might do with circuit breaks in between. So um, that is the thing I think that is affecting people. I think it has quite a bad psychological impact, impact to be honest, in many ways. And of course, it creates uncertainty um, that was already there for businesses, but it kind of exacerbates it and for workers. So, um, yeah. And then and then you add into that, I suppose, the fact that this this has been this row has been played out like a Westminster theatre. It's been on all of the rolling news channels. It has been like in your face everywhere you go. Um, that has kind of added to the intensity of it uh, as well. I, I think there's a, there's a lot of exhaustion, I think, probably the best way to conclude it. Um, Rob, Manchester, the city itself, is is kind of a red Labour city totally through and through, but Greater Manchester has some Tory areas um, on the outskirts. How damaging could this actually be for the Conservatives, do you think? Well, the thing that I find very puzzling about this is that Boris Johnson is a politician who led up a referendum campaign that was framed around ignored people outside of the metropolitan liberal elites need a voice. He then won a 2019 election on the basis of they have always ignored you in the metropolitan liberal elites and you need a voice. And now he seems to be surprised that another politician can steal the same applause lines and use them against him. I mean, he basically set the stage for this. You know, it was like it was a perfectly stage managed vote leave event, but with a different politician in the spotlight on the stage reeling out the same lines they're ignoring you they don't listen to you they don't do what you say and even the same business of money figures flinging around and one side recognizing that the actual figure doesn't matter it's the political symbolism doesn't matter but this time it wasn't Boris Johnson who's flinging around uh, numbers to gain a political symbolic win it's somebody doing it against him and it's just remarkable to me genuinely remarkable that a politician that has used this playbook so effectively for four years couldn't see it coming that the playbook could be used against him and you're absolutely right I mean central Manchester is as red as it comes these days but the the outer fringe of Manchester is full of these kinds of seats with voters who are very much motivated by this kind of populist us against them type narrative and I think the big risk that Johnson is taking in all of this is that you know the them can change the people that we are against can change. And now Burnham is, you know, being crowned the king of the north. He is the us. He is the leader of the us. And Johnson is now the outgroup. Johnson is the them. And that's, yeah, it's 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 a remarkable risk to take and a really predictable risk. But, he, you know, he, he somehow didn't see it coming. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting. Jenny, are you picking up anything from, uh, I guess, that the, the Tory seats or the seats around Manchester where there are a lot of uh, Tory voters? Well, I think the Tory, so, well, the Tory MPs themselves, I mean, just to start with them, were very badly managed by Downing Street. I mean, we've got nine in Greater Manchester, so it's a third of our, a third of our MPs. And the way that the government has gone about all of this stuff, actually, over the summer, um, has been at every opportunity they've managed to mess up supposedly talking to them having a dialogue with them they would you know basic stuff like just forgetting to invite them to things really really annoying them um to the point where uh, the hazel grove mp william rag uh, who's no andy burnham supporter 
has been up on his feet a couple of times, being absolutely furious in the House of Commons. The government voted with Labour yesterday on the financial support stuff. Um, and that was just kind of basic party management stuff that they didn't do. And at the weekend, some of them did split off. Downing Street did clearly manage to persuade some of them. But some of them just stuck, just dug their heels in and went, no, we don't agree with what you're doing. You haven't consulted with us properly. It doesn't make any sense. We're not going to we're not going to get with it. Um, so, I mean, I think those are the Conservative MPs. I imagine some of them are looking over their shoulder. I don't know how many emails they're getting from constituents. But, you know, they've had a summer in which they've had emails about Marcus Rashford. They've had emails about the A-level chaos. They've had emails about um, restrictions. And now they're getting emails about um, the fact that the pubs are going to close and people's um, pay isn't going to be supported. So I do think it's, I, I completely agree with Rob, it's an absolutely bizarre um, political risk to take. It's like Boris Johnson's instincts have just suddenly suddenly left him or whether he's distracted or whether I, do, I just don't I don't understand it I just don't understand it very very weird I think one of the really interesting things actually has been the the political makeup of this row um both on the Tory side and the Labour side I mean it's as if the government just didn't realize that the 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 strength through unity that's going to be created by having a so-called Greater Manchester Metro Mayor, for example. Um, I mean, Jen's written about this as well, but it, it's interesting. Burnham is really, really good at the street politics. And I mean that in a literal sense, because, you know, my mum lives in Rochdale. She sees Andy Burnham on the high street in Rochdale regularly. And just as he visits Bolton, he visits Oldham, he visits all the areas. He's not just the mayor of Manchester. And he successfully managed to turn this creation, which the government under Cameron created, into a unifying force for, for what, to be honest, what are really, really disparate areas often. You know, with local rivalries, believe me, are very strong. It's not just Liverpool v Manchester, it's Rochdale v Bury sometimes, you know. Um, but and, and, it's, and he's managed somehow to represent all of it. And I think the government has sort of misread that that actually you've you've got this sense of unity against you. The other point is that a lot of these voters, they're not Tory voters. You know, they won't call themselves Tory voters. You know, Haywood and Middleton, I know it really well, believe me, is not a Tory area. It's not um, a Tory seat, really. No, it's not. not. It's a UKIP seat, as Rob will tell you in many ways. You know, Labour came incredibly close to losing it in a famous by-election um, by the skin of their teeth under Ed Miliband. Um, Lee is another example. You know, that's not a Tory seat in many ways. It's a Brexit seat. And, and it's a failure to understand, as Rob says, that these people are driven not by Tory values, but by, you know, what is what what can you do for me? What are you doing for my area? And I think it's just a failure to get that raw politics. Despite all the facts and figures and all the internal rows, it's that bigger picture that somehow is missed. Can I just say as well, I have never known anything outside of an election have cut through in terms of political story in the way that this has had. There, I now know two places in Manchester that are serving burgers named after Andy Burnham. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was somewhere offering free pints to people to, to Andy Burnham if he wanted to come in. There was a pub had it on its A-board outside. Uh, I went out for a drink on uh, after the whole kind of drama of whatever day it was where Boris did his announcement. I went out for a pint in town and there were two groups of drunk men who didn't know each other at next tables next to each other just having a massive debate about Andy Burnham and about him being the King of the North. Now, I mean, go back four years. No one, you know, we used to do surveys. Nobody even knew what the Greater Manchester Mayor was. They didn't know what, what he, you know, what the what the role was. They didn't know what his powers were. And they probably still have no idea what Andy Burnham's powers are because I have to look them up. 
but they know who Andy Burnham is. This, this is... It's been remarkable. Yeah, this, this was always what I thought would be the great power of the, the devolved mayors. You know, individuals shape institutions. These are weak institutions, really. They don't have a lot of powers. But if you create a platform for ambitious individuals and give them a legitimate mandate where they can say, I speak for millions, then an ambitious and talented politician can create a platform, can create power to, sh- to change the agenda by, by being given a platform like that. You know, it's in, in a way that you can't do as the head of, of a council or a combined authority. You know, these are, these are exec- directly elected executive figures and you attract in talented politicians like Burnham who go around and knit together a common identity, you know, do the work, do the street politics. And then all of a sudden you've got a powerful foe where before, you know, you, you didn't, you didn't. And, and I do wonder if that is part of what's led to this underestimation in, in here is that culturally career Westminster politicians perhaps just don't realise the symbolic heft that these jobs can have and that, that, that can be wielded uh, against them. I mean, again, the big surprise is that of all the people to get caught flat-footed by that, Johnson, who himself wielded exactly that power of the bully pulpit from the London Assembly for eight years, you think of all the people in, in Westminster, he should be one of the ones that understands where this power comes from. Yeah, yeah. It's worth remembering that Andy Burnham, when he got elected, or, you know, this is a one member, one vote. This is direct election. Jen will tell you and so will Rob. If you look at the map of his election night, it's extraordinary. You know, it's not just Labour heartlands. It's got the whole of Greater Manchester. Mm. I think that I might, Jen would know, but I think it was just one area out of however many boroughs that didn't give him a majority. That's a phenomenal mandate. And that means that, you know, he has to be listened to no matter what number 10 wants to do, which is to go behind his back and talk to individual council leaders, which seem, frankly, just beyond belief in terms of pettiness. Um, uh, but I, I, it's number 10 forgetting that, which is quite odd to me. It's it's just really, really strange. I think there's an irony in this as well that, um, you know, one of the reasons that Andy Burnham is able to have the profile and, and the platform that he's managed to have over the last couple of weeks is precisely because he has a history as being a Westminster animal. Like the journalists have got his uh, number in their book. He is a past master at TV communications, which is something that he honed when he was in Westminster. In fact, what he did when he came to Churchgate House in, in, in Manchester, when he took up the mayoralty, was he imported, to a large degree, a Westminster culture into a political culture, which was local government and doesn't operate like that. And he came in with his regular media opportunities. He's got a grid you know, the, the level of media management is something that no council leader would even think about, let alone sort of have the capacity to pull off. So that's the other irony in this is that really, as you say, Andy Burnham is playing Boris Johnson at his own game and it seems absolutely bizarre. I think that this this lies partly, uh, this is part of the reason that they hate him so much, but the fact that they sort of couldn't really extrapolate what that meant for them just seems very strange. <laughs> yeah, does anyone want to have a go at answering Rob's question there, which is why Boris Johnson didn't? Um, realize what would happen here. 
I think it isn't it because he's just sometimes really good at politics and sometimes really bad at politics. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson, it was a genius general election campaign. He pulled all those levers that Rob was talking about, you know, and he pressed all the right buttons, the right messaging. But sometimes he's just really bad at politics. It, it, and, and I think it's maybe it's a self-regard. It's the fact that he only looks at himself and doesn't actually look beyond himself and couldn't see that actually there was another Boris Johnson in the making, but he just happened to be called Andy Burnham. I mean, this name recognition alone, you know, my mum refers to Andy. She doesn't refer to Andy Burnham. You know, voters in the North say, oh, what's Andy up to? It's just like, what was Boris up to? The only only mm. two previous politicians in my whole life who have first name recognition are Ken Livingstone and Boris Johnson. Why? Go figure. Because they were directly elected local champions. And it's the same for Burnham. It's not bad for a woolly back scouser. Yeah. As someone who's ri who wrote the article, Can a Scouser Be Mayor of Greater Manchester? Um, <laughs> don't think that that I still don't think that's been forgotten. <laughs> yeah, just on Burnham, do you think maybe I'm just spitballing, but do you think maybe this has kind of revived talk of Burnham potentially being Labour leader one day? Well, it's definitely revived it, hasn't it? Because it was in a lot of the sort of briefings that surfaced in the Sunday newspapers at the weekend. I think that was something that Number 10's very much been pushing as an idea that, that he's a hypocrite, really, because he talks all about, you know, devolved power and now he's left Westminster behind. But all this is really is a platform to go back. Um, I have absolutely no, I have no idea what's going on in Andy Burnham's head, so I can't speculate. But I don't think that that speculation is limited to London. It's, it's, uh, it gets said a lot here as well. And, and also given that Lee went in yeah, the last yeah. election and could potentially be won back by Labour next time, that's it. That was his seat. Yeah. I mean, mm. to be fair, I, I personally think that ship has sailed. I think Burnham has mentally now left West Westminster and realises there's no real easy route back. Um, because, you know, he got burned in two different leadership elections. I think a third one would be just such a risk. And the, the similar problem happens for Sadiq Khan at the moment. You know, we often thought Sadiq will come back and try and be Labour leader, you know, having built up a very, very substantial profile and played the long game. And it may be that the long game is that Keir Starmer moves Labour on in terms of seats by 2024, but doesn't quite get over the finishing line. And that, yeah, it, but let's be honest, the next Labour leader is going to be a woman. I mean, I just cannot see it happening again. The, 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 the party, I just think, won't wear it. So it may well be that Andy Burnham and or Sadiq Khan come back, but they may end up being, a, a, you know, Angela Rayner's deputy. Who knows? Um, but <laughs> I think, yeah, in terms of his, his, his place on the national stage, I can't see it for quite a while. I think the one thing I would say on that, though, is these metro mayors and the London mayor, too, they're, they're not term limited. Um, so potentially figures like Khan and Burnham can have uh, a platform with national heft for not just four or eight years, but 12 years, 16 years, kind of as long as they want, really. And that, that does give them a lot of flexibility. You know, as we've seen in the past five years or so, the political landscape can change very, very rapidly. So maybe it doesn't look like they have an opening now, but one of the strategic values of their current job is that if an opening does arrive, they're in a good position to capitalise on it and they can sort of sit there on the sidelines waiting for the right moment for pretty much indefinitely. Well, one of the things I find slightly depressing is that actually you have to, 
it seems if you have to have a national profile to then go on get this big regional metro profile surely should be people coming from the grassroots who like in paris like in france like in america you know you start your career locally you go on to be a powerful regional mayor and then you might want to be a party leader or do something nationally whereas we seem to get a few retreads and i'm not quite sure what the answer to that is i mean you know a, a new council leader like for example sean fielding who's not been doing it very often very long in in Oldham or you know we've got Jim McMahon who was at Oldham who's now gone on the national stage then to me I just find it a bit depressing that you see people the national figures go local rather than the other way around I don't know yeah I think um uh I think I don't know whether that changes over time I think we're in quite a new we're in a very new setup aren't we and I think uh in the same way, I suppose that Andy Burnham is kind of uh, shaping the role in Greater Manchester as he goes along. To some extent, he's setting a precedent for other areas as well and demonstrating actually what this can mean as a role. And it will be interesting to see whether the kind of next generation start to come up from council ranks rather than from MPs ranks. I, don't, I also don't know how much of a factor Labour's performance nationally in the last few years has been a factor in this as well, because you've had MPs who've just looked at the at the land, uh, what lies ahead and thought, I can probably get more done being Mayor of Sheffield or the Mayor of Manchester than I can sitting opposite Tories in Westminster. So that could be a factor as well, I guess. Yeah. It would be yeah. nice to see a woman somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Possibly in West Yorkshire, Jen. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Paul, uh, Boris Johnson decided to pick a fight this week as well with Manchester United footballer Marcus Rashford, which seems like not the best timing. <laughs> well, um, is, uh, is there a U-turn coming on that? Well, uh, I I thought there might be a glimmer of a U-turn yesterday at one period during PMQs when he left it. He just wouldn't answer the question. I thought, mm, is he is he paving the way for a U-turn? And then number ten very quickly afterwards told us no, he wasn't. Nothing's planned. Forget that. Uh, there's still the door is ajar. Let's be honest. And Rashford is such a smart. I've got a smart team around him. He's a smart guy. He knows um, that actually he can keep his campaign going. He might. They might relent at some point in in terms of wider reform about free school meals and, and universal credit. And that, I think that's his big prize is actually a wider reform of the welfare system to tackle child hunger, not just, as he says himself, the sticking plaster of school holidays. That would be a massive prize. And if the government is smart, they'll they'll take that on board. And people like Rob Halfen, the Education Select Committee chairman, who did rebel, one of five Tories to rebel, um, he's quite passionate about it and does have you know, Boris Johnson's ear on something. So you would have thought that maybe there's still some hope for Rashford. But yeah, as as I think it was Mary Foy, the MP for Durham last night said in her speech in the Commons, she said, you know, what with, with Andy Burnham and Marcus Rashford, I don't think Boris Johnson's going to be visiting Manchester anytime soon. No, what happens to Tory conference? I know. That'll be it, That'll be it now, won't it? <laughs> I, was, I was just talking about this. It is scheduled for 2021 in Manchester, isn't it? God, imagine. <laughs> well, 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 uh, we must move on because uh, it's also been a dramatic week in that other huge crisis facing Britain as Boris Johnson briefly pulled the plug on Brexit negotiations before agreeing to restart them just days later. Under the pressure of his own deadline, the PM as recently as last Friday told the country to prepare for no deal, but crucially did not set the UK definitively on that course. And to little surprise, talks this week between chief negotiators Michel Barnier and David Frost have yielded enough hint of a compromise for Number 10 to agree to a restart. Uh, whether it was a piece of political theatre before a big British climb down or the PM ringing concessions out of the EU with hardball negotiating, a Brexit trade deal now looks more likely than ever. 
Uh, I wish I could show you Theresa May's reaction to Michael Goh's Brexit statement earlier this week, but instead, <laughs> let's just listen to the German MEP Theresa Reintke pleading with Johnson to get a deal. Boris Johnson has been lying to the people in the UK. The £350 million for the NHS after Brexit. No customs checks between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And then this oven-ready deal that basically just needed signing on the future relations between the EU and the UK. Come on. These lies have to stop. If we want to turn this around, truth has to be spoken. First, Brexit is a mess. Second, finding a solution to this mess is not going to be easy for either side. But thirdly, and I think that this is important, there might not be a good outcome to this, but there are many different levels of how difficult this can become. So, Prime Minister, stop blaming others for your own actions. Take responsibility and come back to the negotiation table and avoid the worst outcome for the people in the UK. You owe it to them. Thank you. Uh, Paul. Boris Johnson, brilliant negotiator, or was this a choreographed row before some big climb downs from our side, do you think? Well, I think like all Brexit negotiations have shown in the past, it's it's a question of both sides really trying to save face. And, you know, like any sensible negotiation, that's what happens. You know, they both know they've got to sell whatever result there is to the respective home audiences. Um, and both sides are going to have to compromise although we're facing a much bigger, you know, uh, negotiating block, let's be honest, we're in a weaker position. Um, so we shouldn't underestimate that. They, but, you know, the, the EU are like us. They want to get COVID done, never mind Brexit done. They, they want to focus on, you know, real world immediate problems. And so I suspect that what's going to happen is that they will indeed meet for these talks and they will indeed try and um, get some kind of compromise and then they'll go away and sell it differently to their audiences. There was a fascinating report this week. I think it was Bloomberg or someone that said actually some people in the in Brussels had actually accepted that. Yeah, well, we'll just let Boris go off and claim victory. We know it isn't a victory, but we'll just let him go off and claim victory. We just want, a, want it done. And that kind of made sense to me, um, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rob, you've just co-authored a book, Brexit Land, which is about the political and societal trends behind the Brexit vote. But after more than four years, the, the political saga looks to be ending. Can, will we see Britain come together again? Or, and do you think Brexiteers are going to live with whatever deal Boris comes back with as well? I mean, on, on the second question, uh, I, I think yes. Uh, I mean, I think uh, the, the pattern we've seen pretty consistently um is i mean this is johnson playing like his his political greatest hits album here in contrast to what's happened with manchester he knows that these voters kind of trust him at a kind of gut level in terms of leading on this issue they're not really bothered about detail if he says this is a deal that that you know gives us what we want as a nation um, they, they they will trust him on that and not bother to read the fine print. So I I think selling it to his core audience of Brexiteers will not be difficult once the deal is done. And I think a lot of the theatrics around this are indeed basically a sales pitch to that audience that's quite, you know, sceptical, low trust to say, no, 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 I've really fought as hard as I can for our corner for the national interest. I've dug in my heels and got the best deal. And, you know, if, if the EU are also willing to play ball message wise, as Paul says, that's going to help that. But I don't think that will be a problem. In terms of the broader question of why well, is that it then? Can we move on from Brexit? Well, I'm, no, <laughs> and not just because I've got a book to sell. Um, <laughs> it, it, these 
identities that that were forged in that referendum of leave and remain have become so powerful and so general as sort of shorthand heuristic devices for people to understand essentially anything that goes on in politics you know all of us and the polling shows it 90 percent of us can unprompted say what those identities mean and which side we're on and we reached for them to understand all sorts of other developments. Oh, that's the kind of stuff you would expect to play to leave voters. Oh, this is just the kind of moaning you expect to hear from Remain voters and stuff like that. So they've taken on a life that just goes way beyond the referendum. And that is in part because they were always rooted in a great deal more than just the referendum. And I think that those sort of tribal banners will live on uh, for many, many years uh, as, a, as a way of helping people to understand politics and as a way for all of us to talk about politics in shorthand. So I'm afraid we're going to be keep keep on hearing leave and remain for many years. And all, all of that also, of course, would be true even if we didn't have a government that has an incentive to stoke up these kind of arguments whenever it finds itself in a tight spot. And in fact, we do have a government that, that has already shown a, a willingness to do that a great deal on lots of unrelated issues. So, yeah, I think we're going to be seeing these leave and remain spats continuing for, for years to come. And that's that's presumably bad news for Keir Starmer, especially. Well, it is, yeah, because if you're Keir Starmer, you know the the ideal world politically is a world where the dust settles on all of this, uh, and you can um, move on to a more sort of unifying economic agenda. But it's still an easier environment than either of his immediate predecessors faced. One, because some of the most neuralgic parts of Brexit, in particular the issue of free movement, are just off the agenda now and aren't coming back on the agenda anytime soon. So in terms of the actual specifics, the most polarising specifics of Brexit, you don't have to worry about that. And number two... Andy Burnham has provided an illustration to Starmer that, you know, us against them politics, you can change the way that that's perceived by voters. Uh, so, you know, I think there's always been this case of, oh, is it going to be identity politics or is it going to be economics? Well, the, the Burnham model shows that actually you can have an internal identity politics that is also about economics. You, you know, you can have your cake and eat it if you can get the framing right on that, which is, of course, not easy. But the regular mistakes this government is making is, is making that easier for Starmer, just as it is for Burnham. Yeah, yeah. Just to come in on what you yeah. were saying then about the Leave Remain tribes, I think one of the things that struck me about the Andy Burnham row was that uh, it was an example of something where that wasn't the lines that it fell along. It was, you know, not among MPs, not not in the public. The the rage was against power exercise from London, um, and against uh, unfairness exercised by London, and it plays into um, a, a sense of resentment that probably goes back further than anything that comes off the back of uh, EU membership and so as you say it shows that um, that it can be done and I think that there is a there's a kind of there's a dynamic there that's very dangerous for the government if they don't um, if they don't recognize it if they don't see that naturally that can be that can be exploited by a clever politician I think um, in terms of is Brexit over well no it isn't and I think one of the one of the next questions which sort of leads on from that point is uh, unless I'm mistaken, there's still no clarity over the Shared Prosperity Fund, which is um, this pot of money that's supposed to replace um, sort of long-term EU funding. How the government decides to allocate that, 
And whether it sort of fritters it or whether it does it in a kind of much more strategic, devolved, here is a big tranche of this, which you can then spend on your priorities. Uh, that's going to be a big question mark. <laughs> or does it end up being kind of a little bit like the Towns Fund, where sort of bits and bobs are put here and there, you know, incy dincy bits that actually can't really do sort of an awful lot and just sort of suits quite kind of superficial priorities. So that's the, I suppose, while the Greater Manchester leadership haven't really been thinking very hard about Brexit recently, certainly I know that has been one of their big concerns is how is that, how is that cash going to be allocated? How is it going to be used? And is it really going to be used to kind of genuinely pursue a levelling of agenda? Yeah, I think what's interesting oh. is that is is the um, that that it's both a weakness and an opportunity for Keir Starmer Brexit. The, the fact that these identities are going to continue. Now he's got Claire Ainsley on his policy chief, who, who gets a lot of the these issues that mm. that Rob very expertly goes into in his book about you know these are long term demographic changes. You know, these are about a sense of identity, a sense of agency. That word you hear again and again, which basically does mean control over my life who's controlling my life what can i do um um she really is alive to all that and if starmer gets it right you can sort of you can capture some of that sense and use it against the government so in a way it's an opportunity but it's also a weakness because you know the easiest thing to chuck at starmer is you're the big remainder you wanted you wanted to tear up what these people voted for and, and he's going to be reminded of that week in week out uh, for the next few years until the general election he's going to have to i think he's going to have to have a big moment actually not necessarily an apology for for going down the second referendum route, but something like it was going to have to reassure those voters actually that i accept i got it wrong and i think that might park the issue but as i say there is an opportunity too because if brexit goes wrong so to speak if you know if there are more job losses in the areas that really rely on some of these european trade then starmer's in a very quite powerful position if he can reassure those leave voters he, he's, he's on their side because just imagine if he if he persuades the red wall culturally in all lots of other reasons i'm on your side against the tories Tories are reverting to type. Um, and then, so he, he, he banks that red wall, he gets that back. It's in the South where there's Tory Remainers recognise that what he tried to do was actually stop this thing. He might have some real traction where he says, look, this is the wrong kind of Brexit. It's not an open free trading Brexit. We need to, we need these people. We need this trade. Um, and this government has gone off the cliff. It's, it's an extreme form of Brexit. With those two bits, if you get those two bits right, who knows what could happen in 2024? It's phenomenally difficult, though. Yeah, Rob, can Starmer reunite those two tribes? As you say, I mean, you know, your assessment is that, you know, we are fundamentally divided and will remain, continue to be, but Starmer's strategy is uniting them. Is that even possible? Well, it, it, it's difficult. Uh, I, I think what Paul laid out is, is one potential route to it, where, you know, your message to the Red Wall is essentially take back control. <laughs> uh, so again, take Boris's applause line and, and wield it against him. You know, take back control from Westminster. They don't listen to you. They've reverted to type. It's like the 80s all over again. But then in the South, your message is essentially, you know, the, the Tony Blair 1997 applause lines. You know, the Conservative Party that you thought you could trust to manage the economy competently, they can't be. They've taken us out on this sort of uh, nationalistic 
chest beating hard Brexit. It's hurting your livelihoods. You know, can't we return to a sort of politics of sanity? You know, taking in many ways a leaf out of the Biden book, you know, this centre-right party that you've traditionally trusted, a don't rock the boat party, leave you alone. They're not like that anymore, but I'm like that now. Um, so trust my lot. So that could work. I mean, it's difficult to pull off, but it's obviously easier to pull off in opposition because it's it's easier to play both tunes without being exposed, you know, disappointing either side. The other thing I'd say, of course, is that Starmer himself and Labour don't have to play both tunes because the easiest route back into number 10 for Starmer is at, at the head of a multi-party majority rather than Labour on its own. You know, those seats around London, an awful lot of them, it's the Liberal Democrats who are in second place. And, you know, paradoxically, um, you know, Starmer is liable to benefit from Lib Dems a lot more than Corbyn was because in those kinds of seats, I grew up in a seat like that, I can tell you people think like that, they would vote for the Lib Dems letting in a Labour leader that they are quite comfortable with. They won't vote for the Lib Dems if they think it lets in the Labour leader that they dislike. So, you know, it could easily be Labour 20 seats short of a majority and then negotiating with the Lib Dems and, of course, the SNP uh, potentially to, to head a minority administration. And then Starmer doesn't have to worry about playing the tunes that please southern middle class uh, suburbia quite so much because he can leave that that particular song to, to the Lib Dems to sing. And, and Rob, I guess I guess a final one on this. Does If Boris Johnson's levelling up agenda works... Does that end the divides in this country? Uh, I mean, the, again, and this is a, a lesson that Johnson and Cummings should really know from their, their political experience. It's not about the objective economic effects. It's about the subjective economic perceptions. You know, um, Scotland, for example, has done very well out of the Barnet formula ever since 1979. I don't think the average Scottish voter feels that that's the case. Never have done. Uh, they've continued to feel that they get hard done by uh, fiscally, even though it, it's objectively just not true. Um, it could be very similar problem that Johnson finds with his levelling up agenda. He could find that actually he throws a lot of money at these places, a lot of investment at these places, but because he's burnt up, the trust and because he's got the symbolic politics wrong the reaction of the voters there is just the opposite they feel they're being more hard done by even though it's the reverse uh, that they've actually done well fiscally out of his administration i mean this is of course all assuming that they do do well out of it the point is that the political reward doesn't follow straightforwardly it all depends how people perceive what's happening the other I think... thing is you're not you're not going to be leveling up from where you would have been leveling up in 2019 either you're going to be leveling up from whatever the economic impact of this is going to mean. So it feels pretty unlikely that anybody in red wall seats is going to feel subjectively better off you know, in a couple of years time. So how do you make the argument to them that actually they are? It's going to be quite hard. I think it's a really important point Rob made about Scotland, by the way. And um, this is a plug for his book. Listeners, do buy it because there's a fascinating <laughs> section on Scotland and why it's different. And as Rob says in that book, demography is not destiny. And Scotland's experience of, of identity politics is different from England's. And the SNP has successfully capitalised on it in a way that in a very different way to the way UKIP and the Tories capitalised on it. You know, they were at a sort of big tent approach rather than a sort of narrow approach. And the SNP have been really fascinating the way that that's played out. And the great irony is that it was Farage's lot who sees this early on 
got the referendum, but it's Farage's success in leaving, getting the all of the UK, UK to leave the EU, which has paved the way for a possible independence referendum success for Sturgeon. And you could easily argue that actually that would never have happened but for Brexit. Um, and I find that really interesting. Yeah, super interesting. But it's time for the quiz. And Yay! In honour of Marcus Rashford's campaign for free school <laughs> meals during the holidays, this week's is all about politics and football. <laughs> oh, no. I've tried to make it, I've tried to make it easy. <laughs> so let's crack on. It's, a bump, it's a bumper edition this week as well. We've got six questions. David Cameron was mercilessly mocked during the 2015 election campaign while trying to talk about football. Why? Uh, I know, I know, because he confused Aston Villa and West Ham. Um... Yeah, correct. Uh, he'd always said he was a, uh, an Aston Villa supporter, but for some reason said in an interview that he supported West Ham. Uh, they do wear the same colours, so it's perhaps that. Uh, in 2015, Tony Blair revealed he once sought the advice of a Premier League manager on how to deal with a colleague that was difficult to deal with when he was PM. Uh, which manager? Yes, well done, Jen. Yes. That's a point each to Jen and Rob. Uh, which American Women's World Cup winner was attacked by Donald Trump after saying, I'm not going to the effing White House if the USA were to win the tournament? Oh, she called Rabino or something. Was she called Rapino? Yeah, I'll give you that, Megan. Megan Rapino. Okay, so you're all level with three questions left. This is a, cr- a close quiz. Uh, which former England and Arsenal defender attempted to become the Tory candidate for London mayor in the 2016 election? Oh, that was um. Oh, defender. Oh, I can picture him. Oh, oh. Martin Keown was it? No. no. Oh, this is so annoying. Saul it's Campbell. Amazing. Yes. Oh, well, oh yeah. Yeah. yeah oh. Uh, which current Premier League manager has a brother who was once Argentina's Minister for Foreign Affairs? Oh, was it Bielsa? Yes, God himself. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the last one. <laughs> I think Paul, you've won it now. Um, but the last one: Manchester City manager Pep Guardiola was charged by the FA in 2018 for wearing a yellow ribbon on the touchline. But what is the political significance of the ribbon? Is it the Catalan independence movement? Yes, correct. Well done, Rob. Uh, I think the final scores are three: Paul, two: Rob, and one: Jen. Congratulations! But everyone's a winner. Everyone's a winner. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review. Please also check out Running Mate, our fantastic podcast on the US elections, which is aimed at Brits and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with Jacob Rees-Mogg lamenting the prospect of the 2035 ban on petrol cars. Um, I quite like petrol engines, I must confess, with some old old cars, but the government has consulted on bringing forward an end to the sale of new petrol and Mr Toad. <laughs> I think that's a jolly good heckle, don't you, Mr Speaker? Though I will, uh, for the record, deny that I model myself on Mr Toad.